All right, we're going to spend some time now studying the scriptures together. We're in a series called Ancient Faith. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles under the chairs. You can grab one of those Bibles and and crack that one open to page 1007, should be right around 1007. It's the letter of Hebrews chapter 11. As we've been looking at the series called Ancient Faith, we've been learning to apprentice ourselves to the ancients who learned to trust God, who longed for better things and trusted in God's provision. And so we see people in the Old Testament, we've got the author to Hebrews as our guide saying, you know what, we may have more information, right? We may know more of the details of who Jesus is and how God has shown his love to us in Christ, but even the Old Testament saints had to learn to trust God, just like we have to learn to trust God. And so we've been enjoying that this summer. Today, also want to just take note that this is a special day. I don't know if y'all know this is the 4th of July. Did y'all realize it's the 4th of July? I don't know if you can tell I've got red, white, and blue on today. So we also want to give thanks for where God has placed us. We believe Acts chapter 17 is real clear that God decides where we're going to live. And we want to just thank God for the heritage we have here. Thank God for the freedoms that we have. Thank God for uh, the opportunities we have to gather freely to worship, the opportunity to, to run our own homes and run our own businesses. And we just thank God for, for the rich freedoms he gives to us. As Christians, we have to go a step further, right? As Christians, we recognize that God gives us our freedoms to glorify him and to serve others. So I just want to give you a verse. This is your celebration of freedom verse for today if you're a follower of Jesus. It's Galatians 5.1. Galatians 5.1 says this, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so we recognize we have a rich heritage of economic and social freedom here in the United States of America, and we give thanks for that. But we look and say, there's an even greater freedom that we have in Christ. Don't fall back into sin. Your freedom is not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom to follow Jesus. And so take that a step further. Take, take the foundation of freedom we, we're given being born here and say, I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to use my resources to glorify him. Uh, helpful to kind of put these things in perspective is to go to the Voice of the Martyrs website. Any of you ever heard of a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs? Uh, and what they do is they highlight places that don't have the freedoms we have. So it's kind of a one-two punch. It helps you to appreciate the freedoms we have here, but it also gives you opportunities to pray for and serve others in places that don't have the same freedoms to follow Jesus that we have. So I just want to recognize and recommend that ministry to you there. Actually, yearly celebration of martyrs just happened this week, June 29th. So that's a good way to kind of tie together the blessings we have of living here, but also the blessings we have of being set free by Christ. Okay, back to our text. We're in Hebrews 11. And we've been looking at these Old Testament saints, right? Week after week, Old Testament saints that learned to trust God by faith. This week, it's Sarah. This week, we're looking at the faith of Sarah. And we've got this great illustration in the life of Sarah. We're going to read primarily the text in Hebrews 11. But if you want to kind of put a finger in Genesis 18, we'll reference that story a little bit as well. So we'll flip back and forth. Primarily, I'll just be teaching us out of Hebrews 11 that describes the faith of Sarah. But to set it up, I want to make reference to that original story before we read the text. The original story in Genesis 18 tells us that when God appeared to Sarah and Abraham and told them that he was going to bless the whole world through what he's going to do in their lives, what did Sarah do? She laughed, right? And so I want you to think in your own life, 
about the times when you've laughed out of cynicism and doubt and the times that you have laughed out of joy and abundance and the riches of God's grace. Because we've all been there. What we're going to see in the faith of Sarah is we're going to see how God moved her from cynical laughter to the laughter of doubt. No way, right? Yeah, we'll see. Prove it to me, God. To the laughter of faith and joy and the abundant riches of God's grace. That, that's the journey we're going to see God take Sarah on. So let's read our text that describes that faith of Sarah and her husband Abraham. It's in Hebrews 11, verses 11 through 16. So starting out in verse 11, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We have the example of Sarah. All summer long, we're going to be looking at the example of people of faith. And I just have to remind you, when we look at Old Testament believers, we imitate their faith, not all of their behaviors, right? We don't imitate everything they did, but we look to their faith, and that's what the author of Hebrews is calling us to, to look to their faith. God was at work supernaturally in their lives, just as God is at work supernaturally in our lives today. So this can be an encouragement to us, but I'm going to pray that the Spirit would meet us here, because this is a, a supernatural endeavor. We're not just trying to give you information, but we're trying to meet with God, and we ask the Spirit to teach us from His words. So let me pray. God, we ask that you would speak to us. We believe that you speak to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus in the words of this book. So we thank you that you have not left us without instruction, but you do speak to us. But we also pray that your spirit would come and make it real in our hearts, that you would give us minds of openness. Help us not to laugh with the cynicism of Sarah at the beginning of the story, but to laugh with the joy of Sarah at the end of the story, where she saw your grace to her. Help us to have faith. Help us to trust that you're at work. Meet us here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the faith of Sarah, as I said, we want to kind of see the journey from her her cynical laughter, like, yeah, we'll see God, right? To her joyful laughter at the end. In the end, she had the promised son, Isaac. And if you don't know, the name Isaac in Hebrew is the name laughter. So they named him laughter, right? We hear Isaac, that's the Hebrew pronunciation of this word, but it means laughter. So she moved from, yeah, we'll see God, that kind of laughter, to, ha God has provided good, joyful laughter. Look at this. Look at the joy of what God has done. The promised son. There's a lot of other great information written in, in First Peter about the faith of Sarah. A lot of other great stuff written in Galatians about the faith of Sarah as well. And the promised one, Isaac. So I encourage you to do further research. But here's a basic outline from Hebrews 11. We have three statements that I think are going to help us to imitate this faith. The first statement is that God is the object of true faith. 
God is the object of true faith. This is in contrast to us being fixated with our own faith. We look at our faith instead of looking at God. True faith is seeing God as the object. The second thing that we're going to learn in the outline of Hebrews 11 is that faith sees from a distance. It sees from a distance. What that means is there's a seeing, there's an active seeing that takes place in our faith, and we want to stir that in our hearts, but it's hazy. We don't have it all yet. It's from a distance. We have not arrived yet. We have a down payment. We have the assurance of being adopted into God's family now, but we're not all the way there yet. Faith sees from a distance. And then the third point is that faith desires a better city. Faith desires a better city. So there's a paradox as people of faith that we have assurance that God is building us this better city. It said last week we looked at the faith of Abraham, the city with foundations. It's solid. It's good. God's going to take us to heaven. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to wipe away every tear. We have faith in that. But we also have this kind of holy discontent with where we are now, the brokenness of this world. And the only way we're actually going to be of any use to anybody in the here and now is to have confidence in what God is doing. And that helps us to make things better here and now, to trust that he's put us here on purpose. Okay, so the first point is that God is the object of true faith. Uh, We're going to see this in verses 10 through 12. God is the object of true faith. It's not so much about our faith as it is about God, the one that our faith is pointing to. Verse 10, this was from last week. I didn't read this this morning, but verse 10 from last week said, The Lord said, I will surely return to you. Wait, wrong verse 10. I'm in Genesis. Hebrews 11. (laughs) Verse 10 says in Hebrews 11, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So there's a solidness to the city that he's building for us, to the good things that God is going to do. We're looking forward to that. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So it's saying she was considering God faithful. God is the one that promised, so her faith rested in what God had said. And so she was looking forward to that, and it was a power that she received from God. So here's the way Ephesians describes this. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we're given a strong contrast between human beings relying on our own works and production and human beings relying on God by faith. It says that it can't be what we do because if it was about what we do, we could boast about it. We could say, look at what I've done. Instead, we're saved by grace. It's a power that's unmerited that God gives us to save us because of what Christ has done, because of Christ's perfect life, because of Christ's substitutionary death because of Christ's resurrection. It's God's power. It's given to us. We trust in that by faith. And so there's a contrast there. Does God want us to do good things and do good works? Yes. The answer is yes. But we can't be saved by those good works that we do. We're saved by the power that God gives us. And so the contrast is between faith and works because it's pointing to the grace or the way the Hebrews text describes it, the power of God. This is about what God does. Uh, a favorite illustration of this for me is, is with dogs. I don't know. I, I did some research because I was looking up this picture and did a little internet research, you know, so very thorough. Um, <laughs> some dogs you can point and they'll actually know what you're pointing at. Do y'all have a dog? Anybody have a dog like that? You've got the smart dogs. Okay. Well-trained smart dogs. I've never had a dog that could do that. 
In my experience, when you point at something for a dog, you're like, look at that, or go over there. The dog just like sniffs my finger and licks it, right? I think that's a good illustration to where we get, get faith and the object of our faith mixed up, right? Like faith should be us pointing at God. But often we're both the one, we should be pointing at God. And then we were like, oh, but look at my faith. Look at my faith. Like how strong is my faith? Do I have really good faith? Like how deeply do I feel this faith? How intellectually solid is my faith? And we, we wrestle with it. We get all bent out of shape focusing on our faith. The point is God. Faith is just saying God did it, not me. That's what faith is. So a couple of translations for faith we use a lot in church and in the scriptures. Trust, it's a real common one. I trust him, not me. You don't go, well, how trusty is your trust, right? How faithy is your faith? Are you faithing hard enough? No, you say it's God. God is the object of true faith. Another word is believe. Do you really, really, really believe, right? And we can get kind of sidetracked, like you're only saved if you really, 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 really believe. You're saved because of what God does. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't when you are really good at believing, then Christ died for you. No. While we were yet sinners, while we were rebels, while we were turned the other way, Christ died for you. God has invaded space and time and come after us. He's the object of our faith. And we see a pointer. Again, the distance between us and the Old Testament, we know more of the story, right? We know more of this fulfillment in Christ. Sarah didn't know all of this, but she saw, okay, God does this. She learned over time, didn't know it at first, laughed derisively, laughed cynically, but she learned over time that God could be trusted and he would fulfill his promises. I want to give you a little background now from the story in Genesis 18. So in the Genesis 18 story, the Lord had appeared to Abraham and Sarah and he said, I'll surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was listening to Abraham and his conversation with the Lord, with Yahweh, the Jehovah, the Old Testament who showed up. She was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, okay? They're very old. And we know that like people lived longer in the Old Testament, so we could kind of be confused about when childbearing stopped and you know started and all that, because they had kind of a different scale, it seems like, right? We saw some of that a couple of weeks ago. So just to be clear, the text makes it really clear. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So, so that's saying she, she couldn't do womanly things. She couldn't have babies anymore, right? Like it was over. They were beyond that. It was not possible. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Here's the answer. Genesis eighteen fourteen. This is a good this is a good verse for you to memorize, like right on your mirror, tattoo on your arm maybe. I don't know if you're into tattoos. Uh, here it is, Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the answer. God is the object of our faith. It's about what God does. It's not about what we do. It's not about how strong Sarah and Abraham are. As a matter of fact, it seems that God purposely picked some old people that were worn out and was like, hey, I'm gonna work through you. I'm just going to wait until you're really, really, really old and you can't do anything, right? I'm going to wait until it's just obvious that this is something God has done. Again, cross-reference Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's like, yeah, God doesn't allow you to do this by your own strength because he wants 
his glory and his grace and his gospel and his goodness to be the one that is clear is the power. It's about what God does. So Genesis 18, 14 says, it's anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time. I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. This is what's going to happen. Genesis 18, 15, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Joking with a friend about this later uh, or yesterday. Verse 15 says, Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So I want to paint the picture of this. First of all, just to be clear, God knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're saying. If you're on the other side of a tent wall, God can still see you, okay? This is kind of like if you, you had a little toddler that just like colored all over the wall and you walk in there and the toddler's holding the colors, standing by the wall. Maybe you even see him doing it. You're like, did you just color the wall? And they're like, no, I didn't do that, right? Has that ever happened to you? Well, that has happened to you, and you are the toddler, okay? That's what happened to Sarah. That, that's what happens to us all the time. Like, no, I didn't, I didn't not trust you, God. I, I trust you all the time. I was faithing really hard. I, I, I faithed so much. It's like, no, no, you didn't. You need to trust me. I'm going to do this, right? And so there are specific promises here that, again, cross-references. Galatians makes it clear. This is all like blowing up and exploding into the gospel promises that we now have fulfilled in Jesus. But in time, they're learning. They're just step by step seeing this unfold. God fulfills his promises. God does what God says he's going to do. God can be relied on. God is going to save the world. Remember in Genesis, this is just this explosion of sin and death and brokenness and the world is out of control kind of like how we feel right now about the world. Man, there's sin and brokenness and confusion and nobody's following God. And God's like, yeah, it's all right, I got it. We're working on this. It's going to be okay, trust me. Step one, I'm going to come back, you're going to miraculously have a child. God's working. So now I want to go back to Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 11, 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. It was about... God's promises about God's faith. Verse 12, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So God specifically in time, and he often did this kind of thing, worked through people that couldn't have a child, blessed them to have a child. But listen, guys, the point is not about us having children. That, that's not the main point here. The point is about God's provision. So what I want you to see is this bigger principle that God can be trusted and he is the object of our true faith. You may relate to this in specifics of not being able to have children, maybe. Or feeling like Abraham, being as good as dead, it says. You may feel like and be at this place in your life where you, you feel like you're not productive. God's promise isn't here that everyone will physically have children. God's promise is that God will save. The promises are translated into Isaiah 55 that all those who cannot have physical children in the new covenant will have spiritual children. God is reversing the curse of sin and death in the world. Sometimes that coincides with reversals of our physical curses, right? Sometimes we see healing, physical blessing here and now, and when we receive these physical blessings, and when 
we receive healings, we use those for the glory of God, and we use them to serve Him. But you may be facing uh, spiritual as good as deadness right now. You may be facing emotional as good as deadness right now. You may be facing depression or economic struggles. There may be any kind of, of just brokenness that you're facing right now. The answer is not necessarily that God's going to solve that specific problem next week, but the answer is to look to God to solve our ultimate problems in Christ. Say, God is reversing the curse. He did this in space and time through Abraham and Sarah, through specific promises that came to full fruition, not just in the people of Israel, but in Jesus Christ himself. And so what I want you to see is we can all relate to the brokenness. And we all have to look to God as the object of our true faith and say, God, will you use me? Could I be a part of reversing the curse and the brokenness in this world? And God will use you. That's the kind of promise-keeping God that we have. So if you're sick right now, the promise isn't necessarily that you're going to be healed next week, although we, we pray for that. We pursue that. But the promise is that ultimately he's going he's to heal it all. Ultimately, there's going to be a day you see him and he wipes every tear from your eyes. So because of that future promise, we walk by faith here and now, seeing God as the ultimate object of our faith, trusting him. How do we live that out day by day? We're going to look more at those future promises here in a minute, but I just want to nail this down. I think one of the most practical ways to express that God is the object of true faith is to live by prayer. And I think just two big general categories to, to learn to be praying people is we want to pray when we feel like we've got it all under control and pray when we feel like life is spinning out of control, okay? Two big categories. The summary is pray all the time. That's the summary, okay? But first part, pray when you feel like you've got it handled, right? Um, I've been preaching for 15 years now. I love teaching the Bible. I enjoy this. It's a great privilege that I get to share the scriptures with you. I love doing this. I feel now as I get older, middle-aged, like I, I kind of know what I'm doing, right? I'm starting to feel kind of settled, like, okay, I can teach the Bible. But I still have to pray because I cannot do this apart from the Holy Spirit of God. I can't do this for his glory. Maybe I could do it for my glory. But I can't do it for his glory apart from his spirit empowering me, apart from God being my true object of faith. So I have to pray as I study and prepare messages. And it's a weekly rhythm for me, right? I fall into, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to study the text. And I'm going to you know, look up Greek and Hebrew words and read commentaries and I can figure this out. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, no, I can't. I have to pray. God, help me. Will you pray for me too, as your teacher, that, that I would continue to rely on God and his power? Here's the thing. It's not just about me. I'm just using me as an illustration. You, you're good at things, right? Some of you are really good at organizing things. You might have a friend moving this summer and you're like, hey, I can organize stuff. I'll come over and help you organize things, right? That's great, but pray. Pray that God would work through you, that God would be the true object of your faith and that he would be glorified in your your gift, your strength, the things you're good at being used for him, that people would see him instead of seeing you. So often our flesh gets the credit or our talent gets the credit. We have to pray that God would be glorified as we use our skills and gifts for him. I think that's the harder place. It's harder for us to pray when it comes to the things we know how to do or we feel comfortable with. Here's the other thing. We have to pray when we know we need it too. Sometimes we're so depressed we don't even want to try. We have that cynical laughter like, 
Sarah and we're like, yeah, I'm not even going to pray. Who cares? God's abandoned me. I don't know. You know, pray. Run to him. Talk to him. Prayer is talking to God when you feel confident and you love him and you want to adore him. Prayer is also talking to God when you feel like everything's falling apart. God, help me. Be a praying people. As we learn to become a praying people, we will be seeing that God is the true object of our faith. Okay, next point. Faith sees from a distance. Faith sees from a distance. And the way this is described in Hebrews eleven thirteen says, all of these died in faith. Again, it's kind of, he's lumping together now Sarah with all the Old Testament saints. All of these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, from a distance, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We saw the theme of being strangers and exiles a lot when we studied Daniel several months ago. Uh, Daniel and his friends were exiles in Babylon. Uh, we learned about that same theme being carried out in Philippians. We did a series in Philippians. We're, we're exiles. This is not our true home. And so that's a major theme we could look at more. But I just kind of want to stop and look at this concept of faith as seeing things from a distance. There's an active aspect to this, and there's a struggle there too. So actively, you're actively seeing. That means you're you're looking. You're looking at God's promises. You're looking at what God has said he's going to do. It's an exercise of faith. We want to actively be looking for God to fulfill his promises. But we also want to recognize it's hazy. and We don't see it all yet. And we're not there. Last week with Abraham, we said faith is not having all the answers. We don't, we don't know it all yet, right? Abraham followed God. He went out and did what God said, even though he didn't know exactly how it was all going to end up. So that's what faith is like. We're like, I see I see God has said he's going to do these things. I see that I can trust God. I see that God is the object of true faith. I'm going to, I'm going to keep looking to him. I'm going to keep pursuing him. And that's the, the picture that we get here. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. We acknowledge that we're strangers and exiles on earth, just like they did. So my illustration for this would be binoculars. Um, binoculars are a great tool that you can pick up when you want to see something that's far away, Right? I have this thing called glasses, right? So if I want to see the words on the page, I look through the bottom part of my glasses. If I want to see those of you on the back row, I look through the top part of my glasses so I can see things from afar, right? Binoculars are really handy if you want to see things really far away. How many of you have ever used binoculars? Do you have binoculars? Okay, some of you have. All right. Um, I want you to think about this as an image of faith. You're, you're taking up binoculars to see, to greet, to pursue things that are that are far off, that are hard for you to see. So that's the tension of faith. You recognize, okay, it's hard for me to see. I need, I need some help. I need to work at this. But it is there. It is God that's the true object. He's the one that is doing what he said he would do. And so I think the New Testament is really helpful to kind of unpack this metaphor because the New Testament uses it repeatedly. It says that if we want to see who God is, if we want to see what God has promised, if we want to see what God is doing, we look at Jesus. That's what the New Testament tells us. So when Jesus was leaving his disciples in John chapter 14, he starts preparing them for this. John 13, John 14, 15, 16, 17. It's before Jesus goes to the cross. He's given these speeches and he's serving his disciples. He's telling them, I'm, I'm going. And the disciples start to get kind of worked up. And Thomas and Philip are asking these questions like, we don't know where you're going or how can we see you? We don't know what's happening. What are you talking about? Philip says, Show us the Father. We don't, we don't even know who the Father is, right? Like, help us to see God. Jesus, we're still confused. And Jesus responds to Philip this way in John 14, 9. He says, 
Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look at me. If you want to see God, look at me. If you want to see the things that God is promising, look at Jesus. Pick up this word. We, we say this in different ways week after week, but we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. Even more specifically, we've got this gift of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you want to see who God is, if you want to see these far-off hazy promises that in the Old Testament, they're like, there's, there's something out there that God is providing. There's something out there that God is doing. He's saving the world. We can look at Jesus and see with greater clarity who God is and what God is doing. In Colossians 1, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So again, we've got this paradox. We want to see God, like where is God? Who, who is he? What is he doing in the world? And Colossians says, Jesus. That's where we see the image of the invisible God. You want to see God? You can't see God. Well, you can in Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's the picking up the binoculars of faith is looking at Jesus. The story of Jesus. The preaching of Jesus. The teaching of who Jesus is in the scriptures. Here's another verse in the New Testament that describes this. Galatians 3.1 is talking about people that have drifted from the truth of God. Galatians is somewhat an angry letter because people who know Jesus are wandering from Jesus. and So Paul is calling them back to true faith. He's calling them to see with the eyes of faith, to pick up the binoculars of faith. And Paul says this in Galatians 3.1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That, that word, publicly portrayed, it's like you vividly saw it. Paul's saying, you saw this. He was publicly portrayed as crucified to you. The word in the Greek is a very vivid, like video, visual word. What Paul is saying is that if you've heard the gospel, that Jesus lived the perfect life that you haven't lived, that he died in your place on the cross, that he rose from the dead, promising, guaranteeing that God has conquered sin and death for all time. You've seen Jesus. You've seen him. We all have this longing to go back in a time machine and be there, you know. Maybe just nerds like me think about it in that terminology. But, you know, to see him, right? To be closer to him. Like, God, let me see you. I want to see you. I want to be closer to you. And he's like, if you've heard the message, you've seen me. And so for us to exercise faith, for us to see the things that are far off, that are hazy, that are unclear to us, we have to keep picking up the word, listening to the word preached, studying Jesus in the Gospels. We have to go back to the message, go back to the word. And that, that is the act of picking up these binoculars to see the things that are far off. A CID officer had told me years ago that the story that I've heard from many different preachers is actually true. And that is that when you're studying how to catch counterfeit money, the way that people do that is they teach you to recognize true money. Like the more you know what the real thing looks like, the more you'll be able to recognize the fake. And so I just want to call us as a people, followers of Christ, back to we're going to get more solid and more united as we get to know Jesus better. 
It's helpful to understand heresies. It's helpful to understand the cults. It's helpful to understand all the ways that our, our new, like, evangelicalism is fracturing into a million different tribes and warlordism and everything's becoming pluralistic and fractured. It's, it's good to read depressing news articles sometimes, okay? It's okay to do that. But the real work, the primary work is looking at the real thing, is focusing on Jesus, is worshiping him, is reading his word, is getting to know him, understanding who he is in the gospel. So let's not forget that work, right? So again, you know, recognizing counterfeit money, yeah, they, they also will look at counterfeit money. But primarily, you got to look at the real thing. As we get to know Jesus, the real Jesus, then unity will come as a, as a secondary fruit of that. We'll become more unified. We'll get to know who he is. We'll become this one people, as it was talked about in the other text, the, the grains of sand, the, the descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as innumerable as the grains of sand, right? We will be those united people from every tongue and tribe and every background and uh, every place in the world, we come together united around Jesus because we're picking up the lenses of, of looking at him by faith, seeing what he's done for us and who he is. Okay, the last point is that faith desires a better city. Faith desires a better city. So we had this theme of the strangers and exiles, right? They're, they're, we're not really at home here. We're desiring uh, to be home, but we're exiles. And it says in Hebrews eleven fourteen. People who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland, right? So he's saying these Old Testament people of God, we have this in common with them. They weren't home yet, and we're not home yet. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So here's the tension. If we're honest, we say, yeah, I don't, this is not home yet, right? I desire a better city. I desire a better homeland. That's what it is to walk by faith. But here's the thing. The way we make this city better is by recognizing that God has given us that permanent city, that it's guaranteed in Christ, that it's provided for. So as we look at the Old Testament saints, we see this pattern. The author to Hebrews is, is clear. They, they know they had this better city coming, and so they were longing for it, right? They were desiring it. And so faith is walking this tension of, I, I want to be in heaven. <laughs> I, I want to be there. I want to be with Jesus. I want to see him faith, faith to face. Like that's, that's where I want to be. That's, that's part of faith, is longing for that, being present with him. But that longing, here's the thing, guys. This is where I struggle. I think maybe I've failed you sometimes in this. That longing should translate into real joy here and now. That longing should translate into joy here and now of knowing, yeah, my future's settled. Yeah, I'm going to see him and he's going to wipe away every tear. And so as we live by faith, a confident faith in that here and now, we're bringing joy to the present. The pastor's conference I went to a couple of weeks ago, um, one of the guys was teaching through Philippians 1. One of my favorite passages. We just finished Philippians. I was like, this is great. We just finished Philippians, my favorite book. Here he is preaching on my favorite part of my favorite book in Philippians 1. Paul's clear. Yeah, it'd be much better to be in heaven with Jesus. But Jesus has me on assignment here and now with you. That's Jesus's plan for fruitful labor. I'm afraid sometimes I, I've taught that as a like, yeah, second best. I'm here with you, right? 
And of course, there is a sense in which it is second best, right? Heaven is perfection. Jesus has me now here on assignment. He's got work for me to do. He's got work for you to do. But Paul says very clearly, there's joy in that. Jesus has joy for us, just like Jesus had joy to go to the cross for us, to serve us, to wash his disciples' feet. We also should have joy here and now. So that's the tension of faith. We should desire a better city, but that knowledge that that Jesus has given us that better city in heaven should help us to make this city better now. I found a a sign picture online I don't know if you all have noticed this on the highway. Have you seen the Welcome to Colleen sign lately? It got like run over. It's really sad, right? And I know for some of you, this is kind of emblematic about how you feel that God moved you to Colleen, right? (laughs) Welcome to Colleen. Well, the sign blew up in an accident and it burned down. Um, I want to remind you, that it's not just an accident of the army that brought you here. But Acts 17 says, God purposed to bring you here. You're here on purpose. Rejoice in Jesus. He is at work. Jesus is saving the world. We are a part of the innumerable grains of sand, the uncountable stars of heaven. God is changing lives one by one. We're a part of what God is doing. We can rejoice in what he's doing here and now. And in his joy, we rejoice that God has us here and now. And we make this city a better city because we have full confidence that we're headed to the ultimate city. And so two ways we miss this. One is you might have made an idol out of the second best city. Some of you, I grew up around here, right? So I don't have this problem. But some of you... God just moved you from some awesome, glorious place, and you loved it, right? You don't have to raise your hand, but you're like, man, it was great. It was so beautiful. I love that place. I love those people. I love the restaurants. I love the neighborhoods. You might have had trees or mountains or things like that. And you're like, it was so good, but I just want to warn you, don't don't let that be an idol, right? Because even if you came from some glorious, beautiful city, it was still second best. God has something much better for you. Revelation describes the new Jerusalem coming down, the new heavens, the new earth, because of what Jesus has done by dying for you on the cross, by rising from the dead, by giving his life to you by faith. We're headed for perfection. So don't let your eyes dip below that where you start to look back at that last great place you lived. Don't look there. Look to the better city. As you long for a better city, as we look with full confidence to what Jesus is doing for us in heaven, John 14, he says, I'm preparing a place for you. As we have confidence in what he's doing, I know Jesus is doing this. That's going to enable us to make this place better. So look with confidence. Look with faith to what he's doing. Some of you, the second way we miss this is you're not distracted by the great city you lived in. You just have that cynicism. You have the cynical laughter of Sarah, like, yeah, whatever, it'll never be good. No, it's going to be good. And if you have a struggle because of your own pain, because of your own difficulty, because of death and hard things in your life, if you have a struggle to see that God is building that better city for you, look to the cross. Again, pick up those binoculars of faith and look at Jesus. That's what convinces us. That's what gives us faith. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. As we look at that story, as we look at who Jesus is, as we look to him, giving himself for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That 
That's what changes our mind to recognize, okay, he is, he is building a better place. And then step by step, we'll make this world a better place. Now, we've we got to be careful because historically in the Christian church, there have been people that have said that as we walk by faith in Jesus, we'll make this world a better place. Absolutely right. That's, that's my point here. But what can happen is we start to focus so much on making this world a better place, it's like, this is it. And we kind of lose faith in Jesus. So I want you to hold on to the tension of the one-two punch, right? Like we see what Jesus is doing, and that enables us to keep going here and now, enjoy making this world a better place. So because the ultimate city is coming, we bring that, that love and that grace into the here and now. We begin to love our neighbors. We begin to serve other people. And I just want to say, I see that in your lives, and I'm thankful for that. And I just want to say, fan that into flame. Continue to, again, not just one or the other, but, but look to what Jesus is doing, and then here and now, serve others in love. We love because he first loved us. We serve because he served us. We forgive others because he forgave us. So I see that in, in your lives as you, you love children, as, as you adopt children the way that God adopted us, as you show hospitality to those who are lonely, as God grabbed hold of you and pulled you into a circle when you were lonely. As, as you live this out, you're, you're making this city better because the city isn't your ultimate hope. The city in heaven that Jesus is building. That's our ultimate hope. So we have to remember, Jesus is going to finish it, but he wants us to start working here and now. He wants us to make this world better because we trust that he's going to make it complete in the future. So we'll wrap up with just some final words about laughter. A couple of different themes in laughter that are interesting in the New Testament and the Old Testament. If you kind of follow these themes around, you'll see in, in Psalm chapter 2, this contrast that is made. In Psalms chapter two, we have this situation that, that feels a little bit like here and now. It says, why do the nations rage? Why do the people of the world rebel against God? And the psalmist assures us that the one who sits in the heavens laughs. It's the confident laughter of a God, of a Jesus who rose from the dead. And so we see because of his confident overcoming laughter, the ultimate joke, he defeated sin and death once and for all for us, that we can have confidence in him. We're called in Psalm 2 to to kiss the sun, to find our refuge in him, and the one who laughs at the chaos and the craziness of the world that says, trust me, I've got it. And so that translates into uh, the greatest woman of the Old Testament, the ideal wife of Proverbs 31. The ideal wife of Proverbs 31, the laughter theme comes up again in Proverbs 31.25. It says, strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. That's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be the kind of people that look to God, who laughs at the brokenness and the rebellion of the world and says, I've got it. I've got this under control. Trust me. And we can become those kinds of people who, who move like Sarah, from cynical laughter to seeing the promise of God delivered in her little baby that she named laughter. Look at what God has done. Look at God's provision. Look at God's grace. That's what God is calling us to do as well, to look to him in faith. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the example of Sarah, who's an example both of unbelief and belief, 
for us. She's an example of someone who struggles to have faith, like we often do, but someone who learned faith, not because she pulled herself up by her own bootstraps, but because you were kind and gracious. And so God, here we stand at this time in history, having the same opportunity to see that, yeah, we struggle with faith. We struggle to believe. We struggle with cynical laughter. But we see what you've done in Christ, that you came after us, that you've saved us. And that brings us to the joyful laughter, the confidence of faith. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.